health emergency COVID-19, the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee will convene remotely until this committee is legally authorized to meet in person. Public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Each speaker will be allowed three minutes to speak. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are av available by phone call by calling 415-655-0001, again 415-655-0001, access code 2493-057-0272, again 2493-057-0272, then press pound and then pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, dial star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your television or radio. Alternatively, you may submit public comment via email to cgobo committee at sfgov.org and it will be forwarded to the committee and will be included as part of the official file. Please note that this meeting is recorded and will be available at sfgovtv.org. Um, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramaytush Ohlone have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytush community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Vice Chair Matthews, may I take roll? Yes, please. Thanks, Rosanna. Uh, members, please unmute your mics. Member Crawford? Here. Member Larkin? is absent. Vice Chair Matthews? Present. Chair McHugh? Is absent. Member Pantoja? Here. Member Post? Here. And Member Sanderlin? Here. We have a quorum and, oh, Member Larkin is now here. Okay, let me unmute him. Member Larkin, I'm just taking roll. Are you here? So I can see his name, I just can't hear him yet. All right. Um, we have a quorum. Oh, hold on, he's, he's trying to log in again. Member Larkin? There you are. Hi, Member Larkin. Can you please try your mic? 
Member Larkin, we're in, we're in the middle of roll, roll call. Can you please? Oh, thank you very much. Okay, so we, it's okay. It happens to all of us. Um, so for the record, the meeting is started at 940. Thanks, Roseanne. Uh, just I'd like to take a moment to let our newest board member, Ms. Andrea Crawford, introduce herself. Thank you, Vice Chair Matthews. Can you all hear me? Yes. Very nice to be here. Um, and my name is Andrea Crawford. I am a um, small business owner in San Francisco. I live in District 3 and my business is based in District 6. Um, and my business is a fund is for the most part fundraising council for nonprofits and municipalities. Um, so we write a lot of grants, um, grant proposals for large uh, infrastructure projects. Um, and our our experience with these projects kind of stops there. So I'm really so um, happy to be part of the Siegelbach to see, um, to learn a little bit more about what happens after these projects are funded. Um, so that's why I'm here. And thank you again. Great, thanks, welcome aboard. Um, Roseanne, you can proceed with uh, item two. Item two. Opportunity for the public to comment on any matters within the committee's jurisdiction that are not on the agenda. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2493057-0272, then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. So I'm looking at the attendee list. Um, I don't see any hands raised. Great. Um, we want to move to the next item, please. Item three, approval with possible modifications of the minutes of the October 25th, 2021 meeting. This item is continued from the December 6th, 2021 meeting. Hey, Roseanne, may I uh, just jump in for a quick moment? So hi everyone, this is Ken Rue from the city attorney's office. Since we have some new, hey Brian, since we have some new um, members here, I thought it might be useful just to uh, briefly uh, mention something that comes up with some frequency, and that is the question of how to vote on a matter uh, that occurred, say, before you joined the committee or at a meeting where you were absent for some reason. And as a general rule, the laws that govern our meetings require all members of committees, boards, uh, commissions to vote on all matters, even those matters for which they have no direct personal knowledge. And the idea is that you can just rely in good faith on the board members who were there previously. So for example, we have this December 6th um, uh, uh, 
or the October 25th, excuse me, meeting minutes. Some of you were not here though, there for that meeting. But if your fellow committee members say, I was there, these meeting minutes accurately reflect the meeting, then you can just say yes, based on what my fellow committee members say, I vote to approve these meeting minutes. If you don't want to act for any reason, we need to have a motion by a committee member, another committee members excusing you from voting, have that seconded, and then a majority vote from all committee members. So I just want to provide some background on that before we move forward. And of course, I'm happy to answer any questions. Great, thanks for that background, Ken, uh, very helpful. Um, so given what was said, um, I will make a motion to approve the October meeting, uh, meeting minutes. Um, and I need a second. Second. Okay, may I go to roll call vote? Please. Actually, Roseanne, we need to check in for uh, public oh, comment. Public first. comment. Right, right. Okay. Sorry. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2493-057-0272, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. I don't see any hands raised. Great, so we have a motion and a second. Uh, given what Ken shared, does anyone feel compelled to be excused or do you all trust my motion and our second? All right, let's go for a roll call, Roseanne. Oh, thank you. Member Crawford? Aye. Member Larkin? Aye. Vice Chair Matthews? Aye. Chair McHugh is absent. Member Pantoja? Aye. Member Post? Aye. And Member Sanderlin? Aye. Okay, the motion is approved. Great, and now uh, our next item would be the December uh, meeting minutes, is that correct? Yes, item four, approval with possible modification of the minutes of the December 6th, 2021 meeting. I'll make a motion to accept the minutes. Second. Uh, public comment, please present. Public comment. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2493-057-0272, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. I don't see any hands raised. Great, uh, if you could please take a uh, roll. 
Okay. Member Crawford? Aye. Member Larkin? Aye. Vice Chair Matthews? Aye. Chair McHugh? It's absent. Member Pantoja? Aye. Member Post? Aye. And Member Sanderlin? Aye. Okay, the motion is approved. Thank you. If we could move to item five, please. Item five, discussion and possible action regarding adoption of AB 361 resolution for policy bodies, such as Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee to meet during the COVID-19 emergency via teleconference. Resolved that the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee finds as follows. The state of California and the city remain in a state of emergency due to the COVID-19 pandemic. At this meeting, the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee has considered the circumstances of the state of emergency. State and city officials continue to recommend measures to promote physical distancing and other social distancing measures in some settings. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, conducting meetings of this body in person would present imminent risk to the safety of attendees and the state of emergency continues to directly impact the ability to, of members to meet safely in person. Further resolved that for at least the next 30 days of the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee will continue to occur exclusively by teleconferencing technology and not by any in-person meeting, meetings or any other meetings with public access to the places where any policy body member is present for the meeting. Such meetings of the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee that occur by teleconferencing, technology will provide an opportunity for members of the public to address this body and will otherwise occur in a manner that protects the statutory and constitutional rights of parties and the members of the public attending the meeting via teleconferencing. Further resolved that the Secretary and staff of the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee is directed to place a resolution substantially similar to this resolution on the agenda of a future meeting of the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee within the next 30 days. If the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee does not meet within the next 30 days, the staff is directed to place a such resolution on the agenda of the next meeting of the Citizens General Obligation Bond Oversight Committee. Thank you, Roseanne. Um, is there any public comment on this item? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2493057-0272, and then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. I don't see any hands raised. Okay, thank you. Um, so fellow committee members, we need uh, a motion to approve this item. So moved. Second. 
thank you. Um, Roseanne, if you could take uh, roll. Sure. Member Crawford? Aye. Member Larkin? Aye. Vice Chair Matthews? Aye. Chair McHugh is absent. Member Pantoja? Aye. Member Post? Aye. And Member Sanderland? Aye. Thank you, the motion is approved. Thank you. Uh, we could move to item six, please. Item six, presentation from the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development about the 2015, 2016, and 2019 housing bonds and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation. Thanks, Roseanne. I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen. You're welcome. Our presenter is Andrea Gremmer. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm joined today by my colleagues, Jonah Lee, our Director of Portfolio Management and Preservation, as well as Benjamin McCloskey, our Deputy Director for Finance and Administration, and Lydia Ely, our Deputy Director for Housing. our agenda for today. Since we're only here every once a year or so, um, we're gonna do a little bit of a, an overview of affordable housing GO bonds, um, just as a refresher of what our bonds do and how they're a little bit different from other city bonds. Then I'll go into these specific 2015 and 2019 GO bond updates, and then I'll pass it over to my colleague, Jonah, to talk about the 2016 bonds. So our overview. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody in San Francisco that we have a somewhat sizable housing affordability gap. What that means is that the average market rate housing is somewhat out of reach for, for folks making the area median income. So to make sure that we are maintaining a, an economic diversity in the city, we are targeting a wide range of communities, um, including seniors, educators, low-income, middle-income folks, um, as well as public housing communities. Our bonds are a little bit different from other city GO bonds. We are not public works. Um, we don't build anything ourselves. Rather, we use these bonds to make loans to developers who then work with contractors to build out projects and ultimately own those assets at the end. What that means is that the 2015 and 2019 bonds may just be one of several funding sources for these projects. Um, but since city funding is typically a little bit cheaper than external funding, that means that our funding is used usually earlier in a project rather than later, which is great because that means that our loans can jumpstart development um, for projects that may have, have some trouble getting off the ground otherwise. Are there any questions on that before I move on? Thank you, Vice Chair Matthews, for shaking your head now. <laughs> um, so to jump into the 2015 Affordable Housing Go Bond update, um, this bond passed almost seven years ago, way back in November 2015. We have completed all three issuances of the bond, and our first two issuances are more than 97% spent as of this last December. 
our third issuance, um, which was completed in October 2019, um, only a few months before COVID hit us, is almost 30% spent, um, which considering the, let's call them hiccups of the last two years, um, I think is, is pretty good. This is our 2015 affordable housing bond program summary. Um, this shows where we are focusing our funding. And as you can see, we are heavily invested in low-income housing. Um, and we also have a set aside for low-income housing specifically in the mission. Our spend down timeline. So as I just mentioned, the first and second issuances are more than 97% spent as of December. So we are projecting that they will be fully spent by the end of 2022. The third bond issuance is heavily dependent on an educator housing program project at 43rd and Irving, um, which is slated to start construction in mid-2022. So we are projecting that, that that issuance will be fully spent in 2024. This is a map of all of the projects that have been partially funded by the 2015 Affordable Housing Bond. Um, for some context, the single-family housing bubbles, the little orange ones, um, those are our down payment assistance loans. They're mainly our down payment assistance loans. Um, those are interest-free and sort of silent seconds to first-time homebuyers um, that are not due back until the property is sold or transferred, so to help folks buy their first home. And then the blue bubbles are representative of our, our multifamily housing projects. This is our bond unit production summary. So you can see that we are projecting to add over 1,500 affordable units to our housing stock um, with the 2015 bonds. Something that I want to reiterate on the slide is that Again, the 2015 and 2019 bonds may just be one of several funding sources for a project. And our funding sources are typically used earlier rather than later, which means that there is a little bit of a timing difference in terms of when we spend our money versus when projects are completed. So we may come back next year and the year after and be like, hey, we've spent all our 2015 money. Um, and that does not necessarily mean that all of these projects will be completed. Since we are so close to spending down the whole 2015 bond, um, we want to share some pictures and renderings of projects that are completed um, and in progress, because we think they're pretty great. They're kind of cool. So this is 1990 Folsom. Um, this was partially funded by the low-income housing um, set aside for the mission and ended up with 143 units. This is a rendering of the Balboa Park Upper Yard Project, um, which is currently in construction and will be a mix of low-income and middle-income units. This is 19, excuse me, 1296 Shotwell, also in the mission, um, completed last year for 94 units. And this picture, which I actually thought was a rendering when I first saw it, because wow, is that sky blue. Um, is over by the Embarcadero. Um, this is 88 Broadway and 735 Davis, which was completed for 115 units. And at this time, I'd be happy to take any questions that you may have on the 2015 bond update.
Great. Thanks for that overview. Um, we've been doing a reshuffling and then I'll call on you, Brian, in a moment. Uh, we've been doing a little reshuffling on committee assignments and I've volunteered to uh, step into this. So I'll, I'll be connecting with y'all um, later as we go forward. Um, I just had a quick question about the the DPLA program, those the little yellow bubbles you referenced earlier. Um, that visual showed uh, kind of all three of the legs of the program, the, the public piece, the um, safety, the police fire dedicated program and the educator program. Is that right? So I believe for the 2015 bond, and I'm also going to defer to you, Benjamin, if I am saying this incorrectly, um, I believe for the 2015 bond, we are not specifically funding um, police or fire loans. I believe for 2015, it's only educator um, and middle income. Okay. That, that's correct. Sorry. Great. Great. Um, uh, I'll call in member Larkin. Okay. Thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, I had a question. Well, first I'll say a general question about all the programs, but this would be a good place to ask it. Because of the COVID shutdown that the city attorney issued to construction contracts, have you started to get any kind of delay claims from contractors or will you not see them since you're the developer is the person who is running the contract? That is correct. We will not see those the developers. Okay. Well, if, if you should hear of any, I'd, I'd love to hear about them at some future meeting. Um, the other question is more specific about your small sites program. As I understand it, that helps keep people who are currently in a, a particular building in it while you, is it purchase it and then renovate it? Is that how it works? Um, that is my understanding. Um, my colleague Jenna will actually talk a lot more about that um, as part of the 2016 bond update. Oh, okay. Because I, I read it in the 2015 report, but if 2016 is similar, then that's fine. I'll wait for that. Excellent. I have a question. Should I proceed? Yeah, please. Um, again, with the single family loan program, what does one need to do to qualify to, to get that? What does a homeowner need to do to qualify to get to participate in that program? Benjamin, would you mind taking that question? Sure, happy to. Uh, Benjamin McCloskey, Deputy Director for Finance and Administration at MoCD. Um, there's a few steps in the process. Uh, the first and kind of overarching qualifying requirement is uh, income based. So the program only serves people uh, within certain income bands based on your how many people are in your family or your household. Um, once you meet kind of that basic criteria, um, households are required to attend uh, several days of or several sessions rather of home buyer training that is offered through our nonprofit partner organizations, um, including uh, sessions in um, Spanish and also I believe Chinese uh, for monolingual speakers. Um, and during those sessions, the home buyers learn not only about the, the down payment assistance program, but but about what it means to be a home owner, home buyer generally. Like how does the process work? What do you need to be aware of? What does it mean for you know your credit score? 
qualifying for a mortgage, kind of laying out the whole landscape. And then once a home buyer, a potential home buyers complete that training, they, they get a certificate that they've completed, and then they're, they're able to enter our down payment assistance loan lottery. So then they, um, whenever we have, we have the lottery opens, the last time it was open um, was summer of 2021. Um, so it maybe it opens every year to 18 months or something, uh, depending on staff levels and availability of funds. Uh, people will enter the lottery uh, and then it's, it's a lottery. It's, and then we, everyone gets a rank in the lottery and we, um, we give people uh, a, a letter that says, um, you know, you've, you should go ahead and proceed and start looking for a home. And then it's really on the home buyer to work with a realtor to make sure that they're pre-qualified, identify a place they want to live, and um, and then you know some of the people who who even win in the lottery don't end up buying a home for whatever set of reasons. So then that enables us to kind of move to the next household in the lottery. So that's that's an overview of the process. Thank you, thank you very much. And so what Tim asked earlier. Sometimes another criterion is one's profession, i.e. an SF USD employee or SFPD employee. Is that also correct? It's not just based on income. So we have uh, some separate um, funding allocations that are specifically targeted to first responders and to teachers. Um, if uh, the income criteria for the teachers is is exactly the same as the non-teacher pool. Um, it, it just means that there's kind of a separate pool of money that's dedicated specifically for educators. The um, first responders, their, their income levels are allowed to be a little bit higher than in the normal pool um, to, to be able to receive a down payment assistance loan. But, but they're, they're not really requirements. It's more just if you're a teacher or if you're a first responder, we would fund you out of the respective funding pools. Right, and are those um, the only professional uh, criteria? There, there isn't a pool for artists or, you know, small business owners or anything. It, that those are the only ones. The first responders and the teachers, public teachers, school teachers. Correct. Those, those are the only set aside programs. Thank you. Thanks, folks. Um, any more comments or discussions? And we can, if not, we can move to the end of this presentation on the 2016 program. Great, let's do that. So actually, before we get to 2016, we're going to leap ahead into the future to the 2019 bonds. Um, this is very similar to the 2015 bond, uh, both in how we're allocating the funding and in the concept behind it. Again, we're not building assets ourselves. We are make loans to developers who are then working with contractors to build out the projects. Um, this bond did pass in November 2019. You can see it's almost twice as large as the 2015 bond. And we completed our first issuance not quite a year ago for 254 million. And we've already spent about a quarter of that. Um, the majority of that spending was in these four projects listed below. Because we are spending our first issuance so quickly, we're projecting that we'll be completely spent down by mid-2024. 
um, we'll be, we're anticipating that we will complete our second and third issuances in late 2022 and late 2023, um, moving right along with that spending. This slide also shows our funding allocation for the 2019 bond. Um, you can see, again, this is similar to the 2015 bond. We're heavily invested in low-income housing, but we've also broken out um, some buckets for senior-specific housing and educator housing as well. This slide just shows our projected spending for the first issuance over time. Um, you can see that spending is projected to be pretty consistent up until that last year of the bond where it flattens out a tiny little bit, which as I'm sure you all know is fairly consistent with, with most bond spending. And this is our 2019 project map. And um, you can see everything right now is um, the multifamily projects that we've funded. We haven't funded any down payment assistance loans out of the 2019 bond yet, um, but that is, is one of the programs that we're funding with the 2019 bond. So you can expect that this map will get more colorful and busier as we come back. And then our last slide for the 2019 bond, um, this is our projected units that are being funded by the first issuance. Um, we're projecting over 2,300 units. And again, I want to reiterate that these are, are loans that are partially funding these projects. So it is possible that when we do our second and third issuances, we will add money to these projects, but we won't necessarily add units because these this is the units for the whole projects. Um, on the flip side, as we fund additional projects, we will add units to the slide going forward. And I'll be happy to take any questions on the 2019 bond update. Great. Thank you. Any specific questions on the 2019 fellow um, committee members? And seeing none now, we can move to the 2016 program. Thank you for the presentation. Thank you, Vice Chair Matthews. I will pass it over to my colleague, Jonah. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, committee members. Jonah Lee, Director of Portfolio Management and Preservation. Very pleased to be here today to present on an update on the Affordable Housing 2016 Preservation and Seismic Safety Pass program updates. Next slide, please. Um, so just a quick background. The original authorization for the program originates in uh, the 1992 Proposition A Seismic Safety Loan Program. Um, at that time, $350 million of bond capacity was designated to make a variety of loan types, deferred loans, below market rate loans, uh, and market rate loans. However, um, over the following 20 years, um, the program was pretty, pretty, pretty much underutilized with only um, $90 million in loans originated. Um, and that was sort of the impetus to, um, in collaboration with the community to, to um, update the, the authority and expand it uh, specifically for affordable housing. Next slide, please. Um, when that happened in um, <clears throat> in 2016, uh, it essentially expanded the use to preserve 
to acquire and preserve affordable housing as an additional use above and beyond the, the um, already eligible uses under the seismic safety loan program. Um, and, and in that, it would create permanently affordable deed-restricted housing um, at an average of 80% of area median income um, with a cap, so no individual households um, at more than 120% of area median income. And you can see in the table here just what, what, what that is, what 80 and 120% AMI is um, currently. Next slide, please. So in terms of, of eligible uses, the seismic retrofits, that's are a, a legacy from the old program, um, continue to be an eligible use as well as the new uses, acquisition, rehabilitation, and, and preservation. Um, we are largely using the program for our small sites and our acquisition preservation programs, small sites, targets, buildings, five to 25 units. Um, although large sites are also eligible as well as mixed use buildings and SROs. Um, the items that are specifically not eligible include new construction or acquisition that does not have any rehabilitation. Next slide, please. So the past program really complements MoCD's other suite of, of acquisition and preservation programs. Uh, and I've selected two, two developments that were recently preserved that's, that illustrate that, that sort of complementary nature and in, in putting together an overall capital stack that provides low cost, long-term financing to these, these developments. And the effect of that being that it reduces the overall subsidy need, uh, the gap financing need uh, that the city has to put in. So um, the first of these is a site on, on Third Avenue. This was one of our, our first developments that we did on the west side. We're really happy to, to expand the geographic reach of the program to preserve 12 at-risk units, including one commercial space. Uh, and then the, the second example is um, a SRO building in, in, the, in the Tenderloin where um, we were able to preserve 86 residential units serving households, uh, all less than 60% AMI, but also a, a, uh, I think it's about 24 units that are gonna be referred out of coordinated entry. Um, and across these, these, these two sites, one small site and one large site, you can see that the, the past program was able to leverage uh, collectively across these two sites, nearly um, nearly $12 million of, of permanent debt. Next slide, please. So the, the program functions through two primary models. One is the direct financing model where the, the program would fund both the upfront acquisition and the rehabilitation. And then the second model is a permanent takeout model where, where uh, conventional life financing provides the acquisition and rehabilitation funding. And then the past program provides the conversion or permanent, permanent financing. And these two models need to exist really because um, in some cases uh, in the acquisition space, when we're, when we're trying to um, acquire at-risk buildings, uh, there's a there's an urgent need to be able to move expeditiously, 
Uh, and sometimes that means that, that um, a conventional financing <clears throat> with a permanent takeout uh, provided by the city in the past program is in fact the most expeditious and, and fastest way to, to close. Um, but it's important that we have the flexibility to provide both. And in fact, we have provided both types of, of financings. In terms of the, uh, the loan terms, um, going back to the different loan authorities, the deferred below market rate and market rates loan types, we blend all three types of loans to provide the lowest overall cost of capital to give you a sense of what that looks like. Um, for the, the initial issuance, we were making loans at about 3.4%, um, a very competitive rate, 40-year um, loans, um, fully amortizing. And with the second issuance, which, uh, which occurred on the, in December of 2020, that blended interest rate is now around 2.5, roughly 2, 2.5%. So again, extremely competitive, very low cost financing that um, is, uh, you know, there's where there's just significant de demand on the market for it. Next slide, please. Um, so this is just, a, I think, illustrates that, that demand. As you can see, this is our, our pipeline for that first issuance. And you'll see that it's completely either you know fully expended or fully committed. So of that you know roughly 70, 71 and a half million dollars, we've we've already put out the door um, over over seventy five percent or roughly seventy five percent, and all of the remaining funds have already been fully committed to projects that are expecting to uh, convert to their their city pass financing soon. Um, next slide, please. Um, I do want to talk for a minute about the, the loan performance that we've seen during, uh, during the pandemic um, and leading up to it. Leading up to it, uh, we had very strong performance with no defaults, no delinquencies, no need for workouts. However, um, we did see seven impacted projects um, coming out of coming into the pandemic that, that, that required um, workouts and, and forbearance. And the city acted very quickly to respond to the, the needs for those developments to, I mean, really ensuring first and foremost that the properties would be able to, to be operated, um, that there would be no, no change in service delivery, that uh, the heat would stay on, that the, the trash would be collected, um, and, um, and, and that the, the residents would, would, when, you know, would be able to be safely housed. Um, and so that forbearance program that we that we created essentially um, would allow um, unpayable uh, debt to be added to the back end of, of the loan. Um, uh, when, when we created the program, we did a, a, an analysis to look at what the fiscal impact would be to the city of creating this forbearance program. Um, and we were very conservative, assuming that um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we weren't sure if any of the, the projects would be able to pay. Um, and even in that worst case scenario, we, we determined that the, the impact would be, would be de minimis. Um, in fact, what we've seen to date is that there's been an, um, roughly 60% collection rate on those seven impacted projects. 
um, and the total foreborn deaths is less than $500,000. Um, and I'm actually very happy to report that um, of those seven projects in forbearance, we have already, um, as of last week, successfully worked out um, three of them. And the remaining four are um, fully on track to, to, to work out later on this spring. Next slide, please. This is just a little bit more detail of the forbearance. Um, this is kind of a um, the presentation of this. I, I don't think it gives as much of the the. Um, it's not quite as illustrative as I as I as I think it could be, and, and maybe the next round will will change the format. It just it gives you a, the the list of loans, and based on their par value. Um, what, what is performing and what is in forbearance. Um, and as of the time of the uh, drafting of the presentation, we, we, have not, um, we had not updated the, the three projects that, that were worked out. But I can tell you right now that those ones include 6028th Street, which is up at the top. Um, 1411 Florida Street has also been successfully worked out and 65, 69 Woodward Street has also been worked out. So the remaining four that um, are still in forbearance include 17th Street, uh, the property on Mission Street, San Carlos, and Cap Street. Um, and the one thing that I don't like about this, this slide that I will, I will jade into the future is again, if you look at the percentages that sort of, it's just based on the par amount, it's not really reflective of the fact that these projects have been paying 60% of their debt service. So it's not, you know, yes, that's the total amount of the, the par value of the loan that's in forbearance, but it doesn't reflect the actual payments that we've been receiving, which have been significantly higher. Next slide, please. Um, so lots of lessons learned from the pandemic. I think um, you know we are are taking a a, a, a very uh, a very different and much more conservative look at the underwriting practices and standards that need to be in place. Um, I don't think that this program was was um, uniquely impacted across other lending programs that that operate either in the conventional space or in the affordable space. Um, uh, but there are still lessons learned, and so we, you know, we are um, updating those those underwriting guidelines to be more prudent and conservative. Um, some additional risk mitigation that I think you know is worth mentioning is that the permanent takeout financing model actually um, actually helps mitigate some of the risk because when the city's financing and the past financing doesn't come in until the property is fully stabilized, um, you know. We 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 ensure that that we by the time we come in we have a fully performing and, and stabilized project. So that's that's a um, you know one of the other benefits of that that permanent takeout financing model. Um, I mentioned the forbearance program, but I think it's also worth mentioning that we we provided roughly three and a half million dollars of capacity building investments to our nonprofit partners that were active in this acquisition preservation space. And that's you know, done a lot. They have had their own COVID impacts. Um, and, and so you know, through that three and a half million dollars in grant funds, we, we, we provided uh, the largest portion of it was to pay for direct staffing costs so that they could continue operating the project. So that, that again, so that the, the COVID in, impacted projects 
would would not um, would not see any operational issues as a result of the the city financing or the or the, those sponsors. Um, also, we are you know our asset management team does monthly performance monitoring to just make you know really check and make sure and, and stay on top of how how these these properties are are. Are, are performing. So we're looking at leasing activity. We're looking at um, delinquencies and, and um, payment histories. Um, we're looking at reserves as well. Um, and there's been a huge, just one MoCD effort to mobilize and leverage all of the, the, the various other resources um, you know, from the federal government, from Treasury, uh, the largest of which is the Emergency Rental Assistance Program uh, through SB 91, to make sure that our, our projects are in the queue to get access to those funds. Um, and all of those, those uh, that funding is going in to, to um, you know, to help help support the projects, of course, to help pay the, the, the debt as necessary on, uh, on the past program. Next slide, please. So I mentioned the the second issuance um, we we originated. We, we I think we we issued in December of 2020. Um, we have a um, we have a robust pipeline. Um, there is room if you look at the the last three uh, the, the last three line rows. You'll see TBD one, TBD two, TBD three. That's just sort of in there as a placeholder. That means that we have roughly thirty million dollars, or, or a little bit more than that, of unallocated um, funding, which I think is important because we want to make room for new projects. We're updating our underwriting guidelines. We're working with the budget office on, um, you know, a, a proposal for to fund these acquisition and preservation programs. Um, this is a, an opportune time to 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 be active in that space. The need is is great, um, and so having pass loan capacity to 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 complement those acquisition programs is is um, is an important thing. That um, right, next slide, please. That concludes my remarks. And at this point, I'd be happy to answer any questions from the committee. Great. Thanks, Jonah. Um, and like I said previously, I've volunteered to jump into being the liaison for these programs. So I'll be uh, reaching out to you in the future to get a little more info. Um, but just quickly, and then I'll open it up to other committee members. Um, I appreciate this report and I'm encouraged to see uh, the repayment um, of these forbearance loans. I know initially when this was brought up to the committee, some of our members had a little pause of, wait, what is this? Is this within the scope of uh, the housing trust of Prop C in 2012, and I think it is. Um, but so it checks the box for filling the will of the voters, I believe, and also the fact that it's being repaid is is even better. Um, so thanks for that update. Um, it's kind of all that I've got on this. Do we have any other comments, questions from committee members? I do. Go ahead, uh, Member Larkin. Tim, thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, I'm following up on the question I started to ask about the 2015 bond, um, about the small sites program. Uh, there were a couple of exceptions to it, and I didn't understand them. One was, well, just the, the, the things that couldn't be. It, it didn't sound like it could be used for acquisition and building of a new property, and then there was a second restriction. 
Could you clarify that for me? Sure. Yeah. This and this is eligible uses for the past program, and that and, and that is um, acquisition and and rehabilitation and seismic safety retrofits of unreinforced masonry buildings. What is not eligible is new construction or um, acquisition that does not have any rehabilitation. So just solely acquisition. Those are the non-eligible uses. Got it. Um, yeah, and can you talk a little bit about who is eligible for this? For instance, as I started to ask under 2015, it sounded like this is for buildings where people are already living, but they do need some rehab. And in rehabbing it, the people who are currently in the building can stay there, where under other circumstances, maybe they couldn't. Is that not right? That is definitely correct. I mean, the, the program, our acquisition programs largely are positioned first and foremost as anti-displacement programs. So keeping people in their homes. Um, so we prioritize um, buildings that are at risk specifically of you know, either Ellis Act evictions um, or displacement, conversion to the market rate, to market rates, um, among with our, our other priority and sort of policy goals around protecting vulnerable populations, um, racial equity goals, geographic equity goals, um, and really having a, a sustainable program, a sustainable ecosystem that supports the program from the city side down through the the, the sponsor side, the, the CBO sort of organizational side. And is it also, the program, is it also intended to pr protect, say, senior citizens, older people, of which I am, from being evicted because their rent has gone up and you know there's a market for the places that they're in with people who could pay much more. Yes, yes. Vulnerable populations include um, persons living with disabilities, senior citizens, low income, extremely low income households. Um, yeah. I applaud that. And uh, this is not a, a question, it's a comment just that programs like this, you know, keep people who would otherwise be added to a homeless population out of that population. And, and these people, you know, senior citizens of which I am one, um, you know, they don't need a whole lot of like, what is it, um, on 24 hour services of, to be available to them. It's just a bunch of people who can't pay their rent you know, and they've been paying rent all their lives and now all of a sudden they can't, you know, as a community, speaking as a member of the community, not just as an old person, it's a good program, good work. Done. Thanks, okay. Member Larkin. Uh, member Post. Thank you. Um, I had a question under the past program for the, the financing part of that. What does, what is a, um, is project stabilization? How is that defined? I think it's, that's a great question. Project stabilization means that the, the development has met our conditions to convert. So typically that would mean um, demonstrated by a certified rent roll, they would have to have um, met the minimum debt coverage ratio. So they're, in other words, their overall project revenue is exceeding the project expenses by a minimum coverage of 110%. Um, through the, the, the COVID update to our underwriting requirements, we are, we're increasing that. We're likely, you know, looking to, to increase that to 
potentially something even higher than that. Um, the additional requirements would be the establishment of the required project reserves. So that would be, for instance, um, a replacement reserve to capitalize the building's physical needs through at least a 20-year period, um, establishment of a, an operating reserve. The, um, the standard of that was, uh, was at least 25% of the building's operating and, and debt service costs. That's another item that we've been looking to increase based on some of the COVID impacts and, and updates to our underwriting standards, as well as other legal requirements in terms of um, having having clear title, having uh, you know survey and environmental clearance, and and uh, various other approvals. But those those are the sort of primary financial ones. Thank you. Okay. Uh... Last call for committee member questions, comments. Great. Thank you for the presentations. Um, Roseanne, is there any, are there any public comment commenters on this item? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001 Access code 2493057-0272, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. I don't see anyone raising their hand. Um, okay, very good. There's no public comment. If we could move to item seven, please. Item seven, liaison report 2010, 2014, and 2020. Earthquake Safety and Emergency Response Bond Programs. Okay, great. That's me, Lauren Post. And I see I have five minutes on the agenda, and I hope the chair will indulge me if I take a few more minutes than that. It won't be a lot more than that, but it is it is a $1.5 billion program, and, and I think it's worth maybe uh, 10 minutes. <laughs> if, 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 if I time so. myself, and that's approximately what it took. I'll, I'll give you 11. How about that? Okay. Thank you. So just as a reminder, these are three bond issues, what we call the Easter bonds, 2010, 14, and 20 that we all voted for. And the 2010 uh, tranche was 415 million. It's all been sold. It's 98% appropriated. And the, the lion's share of that, about half of that authorization went to the new uh, public safety building out in Mission Bay, which I'm sure you've all seen by now. It's on 3rd Street, the new Emergency Command Center for SFPD and the new Southern Station. The rest of those proceeds went to um, our auxiliary water supply, otherwise known as our emergency firefighting water supply. And just as a reminder, um, a goal is to bring the western part of the city, to bring its uh, water system for firefighting closer to what the eastern part has in terms of quality and access. Uh, the western part has 
had not had the attention in decades past that the Eastern part had since it developed later. So um, that's the overall thrust of this program. So it includes laying pipes and reservoir and capacity tanks, cisterns, pumping stations, that type of thing. And um, even though these bonds were issued in 2010, there's just one, one last project with the firefighting fire, fire uh, water system that's finishing up pumping station two, which is um, on, the, on the bay at the bottom of Van Ness. And then the last uh, group of projects with the 2010 bonds that we uh, authorized, it was to upgrade uh, neighborhood fire stations, mostly new construction for seismic safety and other upgrades. Again, there's just one, one little project finishing up at last, fire station 14 in the Richmond. Um, there was some funding for that was delayed as, as some more emergency projects uh, had to act quickly. And so now that's been caught up. Then the next, uh, the next series of bonds or uh, that we are authorized 2014, about 397 million, again, all issued 92% appropriated. And the lion's share of these bonds, again, uh, almost half went to what we, we heard quite a bit about last year was a traffic company and forensic services division facility. That's out in Bayview on Evans Avenue. And as you remember, this is a project to relocate these units from uh, aged and unsafe buildings scattered around the city to one central location. And that went very well. It was delivered on schedule and under budget. The crime lab portion of the project is finishing its, or did finish its move in this month, and the traffic company um, moved in late last year. Right now, just kind of the completion of what I call a punch list of final items as the end users are in the facility and are really seeing how the building gets used. They have a request for, for tweaks here and there. Those are being finished up. And, and then the last, last project is a large public art installation, which will uh, occur in April. Again, with this 214 bond issue, another uh, decent chunk of funds went to the new office of the medical, the chief medical examiner, out also in the Bayview that we've seen pictures of. And then um, a third component were, were more neighborhood fire station upgrades, including some fireboat berths at Pier 26, uh, generators at the North Beach Fire Station 2, a generator out at Fire Station 19 by Stonestown. And then Fire Station 35, perhaps the most visible and interesting project, this is on the waterfront on the Embarcadero, sort of just past the bow and arrow sculpture. So all of you, if you've taken some walks on the Embarcadero have been by this project. It, it got delayed due to um, the complicated nature of the project. Remember, this is this floating station that you can see in the water now that was uh, prefabricated and then floated over and attached. It's been pretty interesting to watch. Um, but because it's a water project, there are many, many different uh, local and state commissions involved in permitting it. And when we have to look at what cast new shadows on the bay and, and uh, all sorts of different things that would make this project unique. And uh, unfortunately did cause some delay as well as um, all the uh, new power for the power to be reestablished and, and expanded to facilitate the fire boats at fire station 35. And there were some considerable uh, delays, not surprisingly with PG&E, who um, of, of course often with both public and private projects in the Bay Area with new construction, PG&E is not always the smoothest partner. Finally, although the 2014 bonds that voters authorized were um, again, more uh, improvements and expansions of the emergency firefighting water supply, um, not just in the Western part of the city, but right behind Chase Center and Mission Bay, 
uh, that's the, the last, uh, uh, that portion of that will be completed next month. Um, some COVID supply chain issues delayed that project a bit. And then there's um, a, the project up on Mount, Mount Sutro on Clarendon that should be completed this July. And then some um, various projects out on 19th Ave, which are also being funded by the 2020 bonds. Finally, some police stations and facilities were all completed with the 2014 bonds, upgrades, renovations, repairs, that type of thing. All those will be closed out over the next six to 12 months. Then last are the 2020 bonds we just voted on a year or so ago. And this, this is by far the largest of these three issues, $629 million. Two sales have taken place so far for about a third of it, 167 million. So it's just starting to be appropriated now. And the, the lion's share of these bonds go to the new firefighter training facility, which we, we talked a, a lot about last year. As you recall, the existing ones on Treasure Island and with a little piece of it at Fire Station 7 in the mission, but both those need to, to go because it's not safe in the mission because it's Asian and Treasure Island is having all this new development that you can see when you look at it. And so the firefighter uh, training facility has to be relocated. A site has been found out in the Bayview on Carroll Avenue, sort of near Candlestick in that direction. And um, the, the project is, is, is proceeding slowly. Um, the CEQA clearance has been obtained. That's always a huge hurdle. And now it's uh, moving through the city to accept that report. But um, I was dismayed to learn from DPW uh, a few weeks ago when I to prepare this report that the um, fire training facility has the project's been suspended because there seems to be a dispute between DTW and SFFD regarding project management, which I was, of course, very dismayed to hear about. So this has resulted in a year plus delay and, of course, higher costs for all of us as taxpayers um, as the, while this dispute gets worked out. So I, I hope uh, that uh, DPW and SSFD can quickly execute the MOU that SFFD can uh, be satisfied with DPW's management of this project, since it seems to me DPW has extensive experience managing very complex projects, such as a couple I've mentioned, the Office of Chief Medical Examiner being one, the, uh, pub the new public safety building, the traffic company, forensic services building. These are all very technical, very complicated projects that uh, DPW, DPW has executed smoothly. And uh, so I would hope that SFFD can um, make peace with whatever its problems are and get this going and get this MOU signed so that we can start work on this project and have it delivered. Because as I said, it has to, their Treasure Island facility has to be vacated anyway, and, and time is a wasting here. Part of this project is uh, Fire Station 7 in the Mission, which is, has to be replaced for seismic uh, safety reasons, and but that can't move until the fire, uh, the training facility moves. Finally, with the 2020 bonds, um, more emergency firefighting water supply upgrades, a lot out on 19th Avenue, some uh, Vicente, and some um, improvements to fireboat manifolds. I did not know what a fireboat manifold is. I can tell you now, for those who don't know, it's the intake facilities we have around the bay that allows fireboats to pump water from the bay into the firefighting infrastructure of the city. So as you know, given the age of the city, some of these are getting old or are in the way of, of, of new development. And so they need to be relocated or replaced. Another portion of the bonds we just voted for in 2020 are upgrades to police stations and facilities. The biggest among this is we've also heard a bit about is a brand new fire station at Balboa Park for the Ingleside 
fire station. And uh, that project is, is proceeding and uh, construction um, is, is still scheduled to begin in the summer of 2024. This was gonna be torn down the existing facility and completely rebuilt, but subsequently that plan has been changed. There would seem to have been some sentimental feelings about the historic nature of the existing police station. So now what is planned is to renovate the existing station and then build a new facility or an addition, if you will, next to it or right near it so that the Ingleside station can have its facilities current with the 21st century, but uh, still, I guess, preserve some of the historic nature of the original station. Um, one little glitch with this, of course, it's never easy, right, is that it's a very important, of course, that the Ingleside police force continue to be able to work while their station is being gutted and rebuilt. And so what's called a temporary surge facility needs to be provided so that they have a place to report and, and to have their central command. That location is, is hard to find because the bomb proceeds authorized for the, the new Ingleside station cannot be used to lease anything temporary. So it, ideally an upgrade to existing city facility that's owned, something like that, uh, is is would would work out, but but that hasn't been identified yet. So construction on Ingleside really can't proceed quite yet. You also heard you've heard about the new pistol range for the SFPD out at Lake Merced. There's an existing one, but it's it's old, it's ancient. Um, what DPW does is they get they have outside experts help them peg the cost of a new project like this. And what the outside experts con concluded is that actually this is going to cost a lot more to redo the city's pistol range than what was anticipated when the bonds were issued, which means there's not enough money for it. So what the uh, SFPD and, and the city is deciding is that the existing pistol range will still be used with sort of a Band-Aid approach, approach to keep it uh, safe and, and usable, and then uh, new funds TV determined at a future bond issue. Meanwhile, the funds from the 2020 issue that, that were identified for this will be freed up and likely diverted to that Ingleside police station project I just mentioned. Um, mission, uh, there's a police station in the mission that's going to get a seismic upgrade with these bond funds. They received bids this week, and, and that's still anticipated to be completed this year. Then the last two uh, projects with these bonds was the, is our nine, the city's 9-11 call facility that's out in the western edition and that is having a, a renovation that's not a, a, a tear down and rebuild this is to, to renovate but nonetheless this is a bit tricky because of course our 9-11 call center needs to function robustly and fully while it's being renovated but uh, the um, permit application was submitted to DBI in January so that's moving along and construction is likely to start late this year with completion uh, late next year. Finally, the disaster response facility we've heard about. This is the project out by Kizar Stadium that you might remember. There's an existing facility that, again, aged, not safe, seismically, not up to snuff. So a new, a new, a new facility is being built, but it has to serve many different purposes. And there are um, many city departments involved in permitting it. So this is sort of slow but steady wins the race type of uh, progress on that. But it is it is underway and should be completed um, in late uh, 2025. So those are all the projects um, funded by this one and a half billion dollars that we've all authorized. And um, I would only say that in terms of COVID effects, I know we always want to know what COVID did to these construction projects and all of these different bond areas. Um, 
And uh, while no large impacts overall DPW reports, uh, there of course have been higher costs for labor uh, labor bids, which isn't surprising, and uh, more recently supply chain delays. Uh, getting material and equipment again, consistent with what we all hear about, but uh, it, it it has taken a bit of an effect. I understand. So that is my liaison report, and um, uh, DPW staff is always very patient in answering my long list of questions on all their projects. But I think they do do a very good job of answering them, getting back to me when they don't have the information at their fingertips. And um, I do always try to ask why are things delayed or over budget, what's going on? And, um, and I push it until I feel I, as a taxpayer uh, and a voter, I, I'm satisfied and I feel that they do a good job of giving me the information that I feel comfortable then passing on to you. So that concludes my report. Great, thank you very much, Member Post. Um, and yeah, I'm dismayed to hear this conflict between the fire department and DPW with the training facility and maybe I can throw my fingers in the mix with the IFPD local 21 folks and help maybe shuttle that along a little faster. So um, that'd, probably, that'd probably be great. I don't know the details of it, of course, uh, uh, but uh, I'm sure anything you can do to move it along would be very helpful. Thank you. Well, I'm an expert at meddling, if nothing else. So I'm <laughs> Any other questions, comments from committee members? I know Brian, she kind of took your COVID delay question to the air out of that. Well, I, I think I got it answered. It doesn't sound like there are any right now, but just the increased costs due to labor shortages, but there's no way around that. That's, that is what it is. So I, I am satisfied with Lawrence's report. Well, I know our, our, our Easter project head, Charles Higueras, is, is on the call. I don't know if, Charles, you want to add anything to what I've said or correct anything that I've said. Of course, I always welcome that or anything that Brian asked about COVID, the effects of COVID. Uh, Charles Higueras, uh, Acting Director of Project Management for Public Works and also Easter 2010, 14, and 20 program manager. No, that was uh, quite the excellent report, uh, Commissioner. I would just clarify at one point that the replacement facility in the Ingleside is the police station. I think you may have alluded to a fire station replacement uh, in the Ingleside, but it is the police station there in Balboa Park. Uh, it's kind of hidden away. Some of you who uh, may know that area well know where it is. It's buried in the park, but it is a facility that is much in need of replacement as are frankly a number of others, but this is one that looms large as regards its um, vulnerability uh, to the big one. It is a seismic hazard rating four uh, facility. So it's, uh, it's, it's one of the high pri highest priority of projects that the police department does have. Great, um, thanks folks. Uh, Roseanne, Charles, Charles yeah, did you wanna say anything specifically to Brian about COVID delays or anything or any? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because um, when COVID first emerged, we expected, as I think everyone did from a, a very unknown and very kind of egregious uh, circumstance that we would uh, see all kinds of impact to the delivery of construction. Uh, but interestingly, uh, we didn't. Uh, there were, of course, you know, a, a blip here and there, but for the most part, the work that continued through 20 and 21 was remarkably absent of significant uh, delay impact. We did see cost impact, of course, because of the enhanced requirements for sanitation and safety measures. 
that were, I believe, necessary or important to avoid um, uh, illness from uh, among the among the workforce. Uh, what we're seeing, and I was commented on just a second ago, was supply chain difficulties. Uh, both the um, the fewer folks in the labor markets to draw upon, but also a remarkable remarkable increases in the cost of materials, lumber and steel, plastic virtually everything that goes into a building project are seeing remarkable increases in costs. So um, we, we may see an escalation, cost of escalation in the next couple years that um, it outstrips some of the early thoughts or opinions we've had regarding cost escalation. Uh, and that will be um, unfortunate certainly because it's uh, hostile to the project sponsor and will mean effectively, of course, we can buy less with the money that we have. Great. Very good. Thanks, folks. Um, Roseanne, uh, can we take public comment at this time? Sure. Just a quick comment, sorry, before you uh, pick Stevenson from the controller's office. Um, thank you, Member Post. Great report. I learned a lot from what you had to say. Um, and I would just add my voice to saying I'll, I'm not day-to-day -day involved with a lot of the bond programs, so I don't have any light to shed on uh, issue between public works and the fire department about the MOU, but I can make sure that the controller is aware and if there's something that he can do to help move that resolution along that our office also um, intervenes there. So thanks. Great, thank you very much. If there's anything Great. else I could respond to, I'd be happy to. Well, maybe um, the issue of the, of the discord between public works and fire department might be useful to comment on here. Um, the, I think there are two drivers for your information uh, causing that discord. The first, I believe, is the uh, is frankly the lack of faith or confidence in, in two, two elements. The first being the real estate division's uh, ability to secure the uh, land that uh, it is pursuing, and the second uh, being public works' ability to adequately manage a project of this kind. Um, unfortunately, I think in both regards, uh, there's been some misinformation, some misconceptions, and an exaggerated fear of, of failure effectively in both regards. Uh, we're doing what we can to bring the fire department to a better place in regard to their trust and confidence. We can't speak for real estate division, but I, what I can say for my own interactions with them is that they're very bullish and very certain of the opportunity to secure the land that um, Commissioner Post alluded to at, uh, at Carroll Avenue. Um, there, it, it's a complex uh, situation, but again, as I as I say, our real estate uh, division, which is very, very competent in such matters, has assured me that they're very certain of the success of that acquisition of the property. Um, in regard to the second aspect, uh, uh, the, the more direct relationship between ourselves and FIRE, uh, we did uh, provide to them a memorandum of understanding, which an MOU, which we're compelled to provide uh, whenever we initiate work. We believe it's important to have that well understood, the division of roles and responsibilities, obligations, reporting, et cetera, between us. Uh, we submitted uh, the draft MOU to them in April of 2021. 20, uh, so we're coming up on a year uh, that we haven't heard any comment or suggested revision to that MOU. And I think it circles back to the two points that I just illustrated for you. Um, we're expecting to meet with the key parties next week. 
uh, to hopefully break the logjam, so to speak, that's uh, occurred over the last year. Um, and as uh, Commissioner Post indicated, um, every year that we delay uh, can cause considerable loss of purchasing power uh, via construction cost escalation. And as I just commented, the fact that we're going to be likely seeing a higher escalation percentage than we have expected to this date makes that all the more uh, critical uh, to, uh, in a sense, uh, overcome. Uh, so I'll stop there. Thank you for that opportunity. Great. Thanks, Thank Charles you. and everybody. Yeah. Um, before I step in it again, I think let's open it to public comment, Roseanne. Sure. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2493-057-0272, then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. So I don't see any hands raised. Very good. Um, let's close public comment and then move to item eight, please. Item eight, presentation from the city services auditor regarding the whistleblower program. Liaison report on the whistleblower program and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation and report. So our presenter is David Jensen. Good morning, committee. How are you doing today? Good morning, welcome. It says if we have our first slide up. Um, again, uh, my name is David Jensen. I'm uh, with the Office of Controllers, and I am a manager of the Whistleblower Program. Uh, we're going to uh, take you through a little bit of our recent activities and uh, just give you an update as to uh, some of our numbers and uh, what we've been up to over the last six months since uh, you've heard from us last. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, many of you are already familiar with the statutory authority for the whistleblower program. For those that uh, are new to the to the uh, committee, uh, whistleblower derives its authority from both state and local law, um, California Government Code, uh, San Francisco Charter Appendix F, and then the Campaign and Governmental Conduct Code of Four. Next slide, please, Stephen. Um, the authorizing legislation spells out what matters are within our jurisdiction. Uh, those matters are misuse of city funds, improper activities by city officers and employees, uh, deficiencies in the quality and delivery of government services, and then also uh, wasteful and inefficient government practices. Next slide. Uh, the authorizing legislation also spells out uh, which uh, matters are not within our jurisdiction um, to investigate. The charter mandates that whistleblower refer reports that are uh, within the jurisdiction of another city department uh, required by federal, state, or local law to adjudicate. 
matters which may be resolved through a grievance mechanism established by a bargaining unit or a contract, uh, matters which involve violations of criminal law, matters that are already uh, under investigation, and matters that are violations of governmental ethics laws. Next slide. Um, whistleblower program staff currently consists of professionals with a wide variety of experience, including auditors, investigators, certified fraud examiners. Uh, we've got both an attorney and a paralegal on staff currently. Uh, we have a college debate champion, a trained policy analyst, and an aspiring uh, pit master as well. So uh, we've got a wide variety of people on staff with a very wide variety of talents to bring to the program. Next slide. Since uh, fiscal year 2012-2013, so almost 10 years ago now, Whistleblower has uh, received an ever-increasing number of reports. Uh, in Quarter one of 21-22, uh, we had the highest number of reports presented to us ever. Um, I'll have more about to say that in a little bit, um, but if we can just stick a pin in this particular slide, we'll come back and revisit it. Um, and I'll have a little bit more to say about that in a second. Uh, next slide, please, Stephen. A little bit about how we receive our reports and how people are communicating uh, their uh, issues that they're having with city services presented to us. Uh, the majority of how we get our information is that uh, uh, obviously it comes online. Uh, the majority of people uh, want to file anonymously and uh, that is, uh, you know, the nature of a 24-hour hotline. We're open any day to any person at any time. Um, you can file a complaint about something that is within our jurisdiction, or it may not be, but as the initial intake point for uh, the city about complaints about how people are not experienced government in a good way, um, we'll figure out where it needs to go. It's either ours or it's not. If it's not ours, we'll get it to where it needs to go. Um, and so that's kind of like our guiding principle about how we administer this program. Um, with our anticipated return to City Hall uh, in the next couple of weeks or so, uh, we will anticipate uh, being able to take complaints from people who are walking back in, uh, which is something that we obviously have not been able to do over the last couple of years. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, this, uh, this slide here goes to how we uh, look to uh, close out our reports. Our goal is to close out our reports, 75% uh, of our reports within 90 days of receipt. In quarter one of this fiscal year, we hit 97%. Uh, um, and again, a, uh, a, a pin in that. Um, which we'll, we'll get to in the next slide and then revisit again. Uh, but one of the high reason uh, for the uh, closeouts that we've got uh, is that uh, we have uh, been receiving a very large number of complaints uh, where we don't have enough information to investigate. And so 
without enough information to investigate, we're able to close those uh, complaints out uh, fairly quicker than we would typically. All right, uh, next slide, please. Uh, this slide addresses how we triage our complaints. And this is uh, something that you can find in our Q1 report available online. Um, but this is kind of a walk through our workflow. Um, when we receive a report, um, we are uh, gonna like triage it and figure out what's, uh, what is going on and what is being presented. Um, we'll look at the allegations that are presented and determine whether or not uh, they are within our jurisdiction. Um, if not, uh, then we filter them out uh, through a, a certain way. If they are within our jurisdiction, um, you know, we can retain those complaints to investigate by ourselves. Uh, we've got a network of liaisons uh, throughout the city and every city department that we rely upon to help us uh, better adjudicate the allegations that we receive. Um, there are times when we get very specific allegations about uh, medical treatment, for example, um, that uh, despite all of our wonderful people on staff, they may not have the expertise to uh, to work through. And so in cases like that, we will refer upon, uh, we will rely upon our uh, liaison network and refer those complaints to them for their assistance to, to get them through. Um, at, at some point, uh, we will go through that process and make sure that uh, every uh, due care is given to the complaint and uh, you know when that has happened we will close out and move on. Next slide. Um, this particular slide 10 um, is uh, interesting and captures my attention for example. Um, in that uh, the the big we have since uh, about December 2020 have been receiving a number of complaints, uh, whether or not they are from the same individual, I I can only speculate. Um, where uh, we've been receiving uh, complaints with the uh, only information. Uh, provided by the reporter uh, that are web links or uh, sites of uh, Wikipedia pages. Um, to the extent that we've gotten 10 in a day or you know, 15 in a week, um, but they don't contain enough information for us to even know that it is within our jurisdiction. Uh, there are no identified employees. There are no identified departments. Um, it gets increasingly difficult for us to, to uh, know how to handle these complaints. Um, there's no underlying narrative arc for us to follow. Um, and so when we talk about the number of, uh, like the unprecedented number of complaints that we received uh, in you know, previous quarters, 
um, a lot of that volume has been these sort of complaints without enough information for us to be able to investigate. So if you take a look at that 120 number, and Stephen, can I ask you to go back to slide six? Um, so you've got 264 complaints uh, within fiscal year, the first quarter of fiscal year 21-22. And if we take 120 of those out, um, that gets us back to what feels like a normal quarter. Um, so it gets us back down to about 140, which is, you know, within the, the normal bandwidth of where we typically are. Um, it is been an interesting process for us as practitioners of this program to figure out what to do with these complaints that don't have enough information for us to be able to, to process. At the same time, we look at every single complaint, um, ones that are just weblings or ones that are much more serious and figure out, okay, yes, here's what we can do. Here's where we are within that, uh, within our process to be able to, to do anything with. Um, but with that 120 number subtracted from the 264, it feels like, you know, this is an outlier. Um, I can't uh, tell you it's one person. May I suspect it's one person who's doing it? Yeah, but um, yeah, it doesn't feel like a bot. Um, yeah, I don't think it's coming from somewhere outside of the country, um, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, but we give every complaint uh, very serious attention. Um, it's it's nothing that we just you know blow off. Um, so slide ten, I think we're good with. If we can move on to slide eleven. Um, so the number of complaints that we can actually investigate, the ones that have enough information that we can do something with. Uh, this slide reflects uh, the number of corrective actions that result from our investigations. And again, um, what I'm struck by is a, a fairly consistent band of corrective actions that uh, result. So uh, with those, uh, those complaints that we were just talking about are not uh, considered in this graph because we don't investigate them, but those complaints that we do investigate about, you know, 30 to 40% do result in some sort of corrective action. Uh, next slide, please. A little bit more about what we're trying to do within the uh, this fiscal year and how we are going to look at doing that. Um, our uh, goal is to close 75% of cases within 90 days. Uh, we've hit that mark uh, due to the, uh, the complaints that we just talked about and then some. Um, we are issuing our quarterly reports. Uh, some of the numbers you've seen already uh, on these uh, slides include information that will be uh, uh, included in our Q2 report. Uh, not quite ready to publish yet, but within the next couple of weeks or so, we expect to uh, send that out. Uh, we also are, you know, always in 
trying to ensure that we've got our best in class program. Uh, following up on our reports as required by the charter to other jurisdictions. Uh, that's a, a new thing that we are uh, including in our quarterly reports. So when we are mandated by the charter to refer matters to, for example, uh, DHR, because it's a hiring issue or civil service because somebody's already been hired or it's a criminal matter, uh, you know, that stuff goes to the DA. Um, we are now reporting out on the outcomes of those uh, referrals. Um, we are also uh, conducting a, uh, an annual training for our department liaisons. The next one will be on the 18th of May. Um, we are learning from and providing information to our peer jurisdictions. Um, our audit manager, Steve Munoz, will be presenting before the National Conference of the Association of local government and auditors in May on our reporting procedures, performance measurements, and how we are uh, preparing for and ready, getting ready to have what looks to be the very first independent audit of uh, any sort of whistleblower hotline uh, throughout the country and throughout, you know, North America at least. Um, nobody has done an audit of our function. And, uh, you know, I think of it as going to the doctor. You may not get the, every answer you want, uh, but you're going to get some better information about how you're doing and how you can improve what's going on. Um, but it looks like we're going to be the first to go through that. And, uh, you know, we're in uh, contact with a number of jurisdictions who uh, want to submit to the same sort of procedure. Uh, we also are doing a couple of webinars a year. Uh, we've completed the first one in October, and we've got the next one coming up in June, uh, and that will be related to fraud in COVID-related uh, topics and how uh, government expenditures may have been uh, used the wrong way. So just a sort of after action report for everybody on COVID expenditures. Next slide. Um, and this just uh, continues the last uh, slide about our initiatives for this year. Um, uh, one new thing that the city has done is mandated a whistleblower training for all city employees. It's a quick five minute video uh, that every city employee will be asked or required and or required to take about the program and how to use the program and what's appropriate for the program and what's not. Um, and then we are also in undergoing a complete revision and review of all of our processes and policies and our collateral materials um, just to get us ready for that independent review that we anticipate as well. Uh, with that, last slide. Um, any questions that you might have, you can send to me, you can send to uh, Mark De La Rosa, who is the, uh, uh, my boss, the head of our audits division, um, and then also to Whistleblower SF. Be happy to answer any questions you may have. Great. Thank you for the presentation, Dave. Um, Chair McHugh, who is the liaison to this program, is, is absent. 
Um, but I'll make a few comments and then open it up to some groups, some of the other uh, board members if they have questions, comments. Um, Dave, I want to appreciate the mention of the upcoming independent review and audit. I was going to bring it up for some of the new folks. Um, and yeah, I'm glad to hear uh, kind of how your group is looking at it as a, as a positive thing to, to maybe get some more information um, and, and info on how you are conducting your work. Um, and also, I want to mention that I know that Dave's office is staffed with professionals, some of whom are represented by the organization which employs me, Local 21. Um, but I've had nothing but positive experiences with the folks there. Um, sometimes we don't necessarily get the results or answers that we want, but um, in every interaction I've had, uh, I know that folks have conducted their due diligence um, and have executed their duties impartially as, as sort of outlined by the charter. So I appreciate that. Um, and then my little final bit is those 120 complaints with the Wikipedia links. I bet I can use my imagination. I know where those links go, and I might even know the name of one or two of those people that could be doing it. Um, but we'll leave that alone. So um, that's it from me. And if any other board members have any questions, comments? I had I had just one quick one um, for the the. The ones that you just referenced, Tim, it, it sounds like sort of a crank spamming the uh, whistleblower program with these emails with a wiki link. I just want to be sure that we're not wasting a lot of staff, city staff time on this. I mean, at what point you just hit delete? It's just as a taxpayer, you know, at some point you just say you just move, you know, you don't worry about it. You've done your your duty in making sure this isn't a serious uh, somebody trying to contact you about something that needs to be investigated. But at some point, you just I just don't want people wasting their time on this. Now, if if I could just quickly respond to um, Ms. Post on that one. Um, it was our initial practice to uh, set a, you know, basically a week to 10 day deadline to for the reporter to get back with any more information that they could provide. Um, that never happened. And so it's 120 for quarter one of this fiscal year, but uh, we've got more history going back um, where no information was provided. And so in this case now, um, we close those out within 24 hours of receipt. Um, after a scan and review to make sure that we're not missing anything. Um, so your point is well taken that um, we're not spending a lot of time on them, um, but we spend enough time to make sure that there isn't any you know, critical information that we're missing. Um, at this point, uh, we kind of understand uh, the flavor and context and once we see it, we know what it is. Great, thank you very much. I have a question um, kind of along those same lines, Dave. Is there um, kind of, are there guidelines published for how to file a complaint and what kind of elements should be included in each, or if possible, should be included in each complaint? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, all of this is on our website. And uh, if you're going to file a whistleblower complaint online, uh, there is all of this information easily uh, to, you know, just a click away. Um, and so uh, 
part of it includes uh, what we think is helpful information about what makes a complaint uh, useful. You know, you can tell me that your uh, the guy you sit next to in your cube uh, is uh, absent or shows up late. Okay, you know, give me a name, give me a date, give me a, you know what times was he late. You know, so that sort of information of like help a reporter develop a better complaint before it gets to us. You know, absolutely. You know, all of that information is available online. Um, whether or not people uh, will avail themselves of that is is another is another story. But if somebody is so troubled by what they're seeing that they are going to the uh, you know they're gonna file a complaint. Um, you know, we always welcome that, of course. Um, but there is information for reporters to help us make their complaint more actionable about the details that they need, about what what else you can provide us to help us, you know, take a, a, a good resolution for the taxpayers. Hey, uh, Chairman Tim. Go ahead, Bart. Thank you. This is Bart Pento. I just want to thank Commissioner uh, Post for her question and comment. I, in action to uh, Dave Jensen for your response. That is a concern. Uh, currently, San Francisco has not had the best record in the last couple of years with, you know, people making complaints and them being followed and may have been uh, dismissed somewhere along the chain. So this program is, I think, very important. Uh, and I appreciate the, if you will, the, the spamming that it does take time, but I appreciate the response of like that uh, you're still taking time to take a look just in case because uh, we don't want anybody to fall through the cracks. Uh, but also, I totally agree that uh, it takes away from your time or your your department's time for that uh, valid complaint. So uh, sounds like you're doing good work. Appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Pintoa. Um we, uh, everything that comes into our inbox, we take a look at. Um, there are things we need to take a harder look at, and some things that we can kind of like dismiss uh, a little bit quicker, but everything gets a look and there is nothing that just gets blown off ever, period. Great, uh, very good. Uh, any other questions, comments from board members? None. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for the presentation and uh, following up on the, our questions, comments. And so at this time, Roseanne, can you open for public comment on this item? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2493-057-0272, then pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. I don't see any hands raised right now, so. 
Well, thank you very much. So let's move on to our uh, final agenda item number nine, please. Item nine, opportunity for committee members to comment or take action on any matters within, within the committee's jurisdiction. 9A, see GOBAC members terms updates. B, see GOBAC liaison assignment updates. See GOBAC, sorry, C, see GOBAC fiscal year 2021 to 2022 work, up, work plan updates. D, public finance upcoming bond issuances. E, audits unit expenditure audits. F, audits units public integrity reports. G, Performance Unit, Public Perception Survey Project, and H, CSA Division, Progress Report and Work Plan. Good morning, everyone. Peg Stevenson from the Controller's Office. Um, this is a long list. I'll talk really fast to try and get you to your meeting and uh, as close to time as possible. Um, a, members' terms updates. As we've discussed at the last couple of meetings, there are a couple of vacancies. Really, really happy that member Crawford has joined you. Thank you very much. Um, and I, I hope you'll enjoy serving on this committee. We are in touch with the mayor's office and board of supervisors offices, both um, actively working on recruitment. There are other city committees and commissions where there are vacancies. Things are sort of backed up in the same way as um, lots of things are for COVID. We did have one other strong candidate that we um, uh, recommended to both offices, but this individual doesn't actually fit the criteria that's specified for the open seat. So um, I just say to you that we are working on it and um, we, I strongly hope we'll have at least one more appointment before your April meeting, um, because I'm aware just of the need to spread your workload out a little bit and um, secure more members. But so that's where we are on that. Um, liaison assignment updates. Any of you may have thoughts about this. Um, again, thank you to the members who have stepped in on the bond programs where there was a vacancy um, because we have a vacant seat. And you know, one, one approach we talked about at a recent meeting was to um, wait until after you had a more full complement of members and then look at all of the liaison assignments and kind of reshuffle for the new next fiscal year that's coming up. I still think that's a reasonable approach because at your next meeting, the liaison report is from uh, transportation and road improvement where um, member Matthews and member Larkin are the assigned liaisons. And then uh, we also have the capital program report coming up where member Sanderlin is the li liaison. So we have individuals assigned to work with on both of those upcoming things. Um, looking out further at your June meeting, it would be useful to us if there was a liaison assigned to the city services auditor division replacing Kristen Chu who did that job before um, before we're preparing for the June meeting because that's when we would be talking to you about our work plan um, so you, you can hold that thought and um, you know I'll, I'll stop there because this is you know really a prerogative for yourselves and the chair and vice chair and you know see if member Matthews had any comment he wanted to make or if you want to take any actions on it at this time. Uh, thanks, Peg. Um, I, I, I'd like your thought of kind of continuing on. We're in a good place for our next meeting, but um, if we can put it out to to call for volunteers for these um, these openings uh, into the future to replace Kristen, um, that would be great. Um, have any volunteers or 
if we can uh, continue to think about it and address it at our next meeting. If we don't be willing to do that one. Oh, great. Ms. Sanderlin, great, thank you. Um, so Peg, we'll put uh, Ms. San Sanderlin down for the uh, replacing Kristen Chu. Great. Um, so what we'll do, the way we'll work with that is we would meet with you at least once before the June meeting just to update you on our progress on our work plan and for the overall sizing of our budget and things like that. And this is the section of your charter appendix where you also serve as something called the Citizens Audit Review Board, where you're sort of an oversight body to our city services auditor division. Um, and so uh, member Crawford can, you know, after she's had a meeting under her belt and has a little bit of a look at the bond program, she can give some thought to where her interests might lie and maybe take that up at the next meeting. Great. Great. Um, item C, the work plan updates. Um, again, what, what we had at your April meeting, um, we moved what might have been a presentation on our bond program from today to April because our report is not done. Our report will be done well before your April meeting. So um, this is a, a complete uh, scope, schedule, and budget summary of all the bond programs. Um, it's not quite as much detail as the last one, but I, it's quite comprehensive. Um, it is a complement to your own uh, annual report that was issued earlier this year. And so at your April meeting, we'll have a report on, on that. And we'll also have the capital program staff themselves, uh, Brian Strong and his staff who are doing the uh, planning for the city's whole capital program. I'll confirm with Brian that there will be in a good place to have those two things. Um, and then we'll have our report to you, as we just discussed at your June meeting. And I don't think there's any other needed changes um, to the April and June meetings. Again, what I will do before April is rough out the calendar for next fiscal year, um, scheduling all the bond programs when the cycle would have them come up. So at your April meeting, you can take a look at the fiscal year ahead um, and, and see if you wanna make any adjustments at that time. Great, very good. Um, item D, public finance. Um, in your packet is a the usual memo with the scheduled upcoming bond issuances. And for this, I'm gonna call on uh, Vishal Trivedi. Yes, uh, good morning, members of the committee. This is Vishal Trivedi from the Office of Public Finance. Uh, just uh, briefly to review the, the schedule, nothing has really changed from the last uh, meeting in December, but uh, I can just report that we have uh, a resolution currently pending through the board process uh, for the issuance of the refunding bonds that are on the, the schedule. So we anticipate to price those in April, assuming our market conditions remain favorable for refunding savings. Uh, and then uh, the other two potential issuances are uh, for seawall bonds. Uh, we've had some limited contact with the port regarding their plans, but we haven't Oh, we're still awaiting detailed cash flows from them before we start the uh, the, the issuance process for those bonds. And uh, similarly with uh, the second issuance of the uh, health and recovery bond. So uh, that's that's where we are. Uh, we anticipate to, to price the refunding in April. And so I'll probably have a little more of an update um, at the next meeting. Thanks. 
there are no questions or comments for Vishal, the next two items are the purview of the audits unit and Mark De La Rosa, the director is here. Go ahead, Mark. Good morning, committee members. Mark De La Rosa from the controller's office. Um, on item 9E, which is the GEO bond expenditure audits, uh, there's really no new updates since the last meeting. Uh, we do have, um, uh, as part of our current year work plan, the 2018 Seawall Safety Improvement Bond Program that is in our current year work plan. And there are, after that, three additional bond programs that we still have not yet um, audited. Um, those are the 2019 Affordable Housing. Uh, and there's a couple of 2020 bond programs that were passed in, in, in 2020 that obviously uh, there's not enough um, expenditures uh, to audit yet, but we'll definitely uh, include in our future year work plans. On item 9F, um, on the public integrity reviews, um, since our last meeting, we have issued our eighth uh, public integrity report, which is on the SFPUC Social Impact Partnership or Community Benefit Program that we issued on December 9th, uh, 2021. Um, that report included three main findings and seven recommendations. Um, we do have after that uh, three that we're currently uh, working on uh, that we hope uh, that we plan to issue in the coming months. Uh, the next one being um, our public integrity assessments of the Department of the Environment's compliance with ethics rules. Um, another one on the PUC's contracting and procurement processes. And then the third one on our citywide ethics uh, reporting uh, requirements. Uh, after that, we do plan to have a 24-month, uh, two-year status of implementation update um, just to provide a status on the audit recommendations and the recommendations that we've let uh, since we started uh, this series of public integrity reviews. Happy to answer any questions on any of those two items if you'd like. I have a question if, if the chair doesn't. Thanks, Mark. I did notice in the, I guess, was it the, the suite of public integrity audits? There seemed to be a, an unfortunate pattern of SFPUC dings. And uh, any thoughts on that? I, I really was quite dismayed to see that. Maybe Mr. Herrera will be whipping things into shape over there, but uh, any thoughts on, on, on that? I think one thing that we're definitely um, working on uh, right now, and we're kind of prioritizing our public integrity reviews uh, as they come, uh, but we do have a standing one on their contracting and procurement processes. Uh, I know that specifically the one that we issued in December is on their community benefit program, which is very specific uh, to, to that, um, uh, that unit within the uh, PUC, but there's a broader uh, kind of issues that we are looking into um, that re relates to um, procurements and, and, and contracting at the PUC, uh, more specifically those that um, that are mentioned in the uh, complaints regarding uh, former GM um, uh, uh, Harlan Kelly. So we're definitely um, still uh, continuing our, our work in the controller's office. And I know separately as well, uh, the uh, city attorney is, is conducting their own separate um, set of investigations in various matters. Okay, great. Thank you very much. If you could just keep us posted on anything newsworthy, just if anything comes up regarding PUC in the months ahead, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you, member Post. Anybody else? Okay. 
Item G, the public perception survey project. Um, this is a very happy to report excellent progress on this. Um, so there's a happy item. Um, you'll remember that we worked with your committee to do a public perception survey on the public satisfaction with the use of bond uh, funds a couple of years ago. At that time, we tested a streets project and a parks project and had, again had very um, interesting gains and in information that could be used uh, both by your committee and by the bond program managers. Um, we are doing it again. Um, and you might remember at a couple of meetings, we talked about this and decided to focus on a couple of parks projects. Um, they offer a couple of advantages for ease of design and completion. I'm thinking that in a future year, we'll circle back to another different bond program where the design challenge is a little bit more complicated. Um, but for now, it's gonna be a good product, I think, to focus on two parks projects. Um, we ran the list of everything that was completed in the last couple of years, and we've been steadily at work, and we do have a contractor in place and a contract in place. So we're working out the final details of it. Um, I emailed Mr. Pantoja uh, just to give him a little bit of update. My, my apologies, I should have met with him personally before this meeting to give this update, but um, I hope you'll be happy with the progress. Um, I think we've narrowed down our selections and one will be the uh, Stanion Street frontage, you know, where Haight Street and Stanion Street meet and they um, did a lot of work on the plazas and the uh, pathways and the lawns entering that side of the park. Um, and then we had a couple of playgrounds to choose from and I think we're going to do the Willy Woo Woo playground in Chinatown. Um, we wanted uh, a geographic diversity, sort of diversity of communities and um, around the city. And for uh, we looked at a couple of other playgrounds um, that didn't offer the same advantages. The contractor um, has good experience working um, in Asian communities and multilingual capacity. We'll have standards for the um, surveys that we'll capture in English and Spanish and Chinese. Um, so I, I think we've come to these choices. We have a little bit more checking to do, but um, I th think that will be the plan. And then we'll be doing survey design over the next couple of weeks so that we can be the, in the field in the spring. Hopefully, again, when the case rate has dropped further, Omicron is further behind, masking requirements are further behind us, and people are more comfortable interacting in public, and we're more likely to get just a better response rate to um, doing intercept surveys into parks. So. That's where we are, and um, I should be able to give you an update at the next meeting on um, being in the field and then how long we think it'll take to administer the surveys and um, collect results. So um, I'll stop there. And again, my apologies for not separately reaching out to the parks program liaison and ask if there are any questions or comments. Uh, Chairman uh, Matthews, this is Bart Pantoja. So one thing, uh, Peg, just to make sure you got my updated contact information because I did change it. Um, and yeah, I still would like to hear more about it. And I will I probably didn't get that email. So uh, so maybe through Roseanne, you can make sure to get, get that out to me because I'd love to take a look at it and maybe have a discussion. If I have any questions, that'd be great. Yep, will do. And again, we haven't finalized this yet, so we can certainly take any feedback you might have into the choices. Um, and then CSA division progress report and work plan. Um, you have a memo from Mark De La Rosa in your packet. Um, you do not have a memo from me, but um, suffice to say, we 
we're doing well. Um, we again have all of our staff out of their COVID deployments and we're well underway with um, non-COVID work that we had to pause. We still have five people on staff who are specifically supporting uh, COVID data work and the hotel housing program. So we hope to wind all that down by the end of this fiscal year and be uh, back up into sort of full compliance with working with all of our departmental clients and the other program requirements that are in our charter amendment. And I'll have more to report on that as we do our work planning for uh, fiscal year 22-23. And we'll reach out to member Sanderlin on that as we just discussed. And I'll stop there and see if Mark has any comments on what he, he provided. Yeah, just uh, very quickly on the uh, CSA audits um, uh, front, uh, we do continue uh, to uh, to devote a portion of our work plan and CSA audits uh, uh, to continue our citywide cost recovery um, efforts. Um, as you know, uh, we uh, serve as the citywide um, cost recovery lead during an emergency and given COVID, uh, we have uh, devoted um, uh, a portion of our hours to ensure that we do um, submit our claims and, and pre-audit our documentation uh, before we submit them to FEMA. And as you know, costs are continuing as, as the emergency continues. Uh, so we will, um, so we do continue to uh, devote some of those hours um, while we also continue to uh, uh, to conduct the usual um, a suite of work from our CSA audits, from a whistleblower program uh, to our public integrity assessments, our um, risk-based audits, our geo-bond expenditures, IT cybersecurity audits. Um, and we uh, plan to, as, as Peg alluded to, uh, uh, we will uh, be work planning in the uh, coming months uh, for our FY22-23 uh, work plan, um, a lot of which for at least on the CSA audits front um, uh, will we'll be a, a carry forward of what we've been working on, um, except for we're, we're hoping that the, uh, the cost recovery portion of, of what we're uh, uh, devoting our time will um, will taper uh, down in, in the months ahead. Great. Very good. Thanks, Mark. Um, any other questions, comments from board members on this item? Just one other quick thing to add to the public perception survey, um, credit where credit is due. I have a staff person who's got really substantial experience in survey design, Linus Starts, and she's been the person who's been working on getting this contract ready in the design. So you will meet her when we, we do the presentations, but just wanted to share that name. Great, thank you. Um, okay, it looks like we're at the end of that item. Uh, Rosanna, is there any public comment on this? Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001, access code 2493-057-0272, then press pound and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Please note that you will have three minutes. I don't see any hands raised. I do see one. You do? Uh, color four, possibly. Um. Color four, I have three. Okay, so I have three people I see. 
common user. Oh, I see what happened. It split on my two screens. There he is. Sorry about that. Whoops. So my name is Francisco da Costa, and I've Thank been you. listening to this meeting. And this is a citizen oversight committee meeting. This is not a cabal. And when you deny the public from giving comment, then you're doing injustice to everybody. So this is what I have to say. I'm fed up with the Ethics Commission, the Sunshine Task Force, the Controller's Office, because just look at this meeting. Here's this woman who should check to see if there's really public comment. I was forced to send a text message to one of you members who may have brought it to her attention that she's not doing due diligence. But it's very important to remember that with all the corruption going on in this blessed city, one of the things that all these committees do is they do not respect the community. They don't respect the citizen. They do not respect the constituent. Shame on y'all. And my name is Francisco da Costa. I'm the director of environmental justice advocacy. I'm the one who first called upon all the corruption with the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission and provided the controller's office with empirical data. The controller's office has let us down. Thank you very much. Great. Are there uh, any I, other? I apologize. I'm not really sure what happened. I see the attendee list, but for some reason, it's not showing me the hands raised. Um, also, we did have a public comment for whistleblower. The same thing happened. I didn't see the hand raised, um, so they emailed it. I just received the email. Should I read it now or um, email it after the meeting? I believe the, the, the caller um, has already hung up for that one. Just email it to us. I suggest you include it in the meeting minutes and say you didn't see at the time. Okay. okay, thank you. Yeah, that usually doesn't happen, so I'm not sure what's going on. Okay, um, any other public uh, comment at this time? I don't see any other attendees other than some uh, CSA attendees. Great. Uh, well, with no more comment, we'll include that email in our minutes uh, that you received, and okay. I'll entertain a motion to adjourn the meeting. So moved. Second. All right. Thanks a lot, folks. I don't think we need to, we'll raise our hands. But... Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, we're out of here. <laughs> Thanks, Bye. folks. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Everything.